This episode of the Maple Forward podcast is brought to you by Maple Forward Consulting, bringing you business development consulting for new or established businesses in the coffee industry around the globe. For more information, head to mapperforward.org forward slash consulting today. Welcome to today's episode of the Mapper Forward podcast, friends. This is not the last episode of the podcast for the year, but it is our last conversation for the year. And I tell you what, it is a stunner. The formidable Judy Gaines is back to tell us about what she found on her most recent trip to Brazil, which happened in October 2021. If you listened to our first discussion with Judy earlier this year, you know how knowledgeable and informed she is. That means that the information that you are about to hear is information that you can trust. Judy has gone to Brazil, she has seen it with her own eyes, and she is going to talk about what she believes the next few years are going to hold for not only the Brazilian market, but for coffee prices worldwide. This was a super eye-opening conversation, and we learned a lot. I think you'll gain a lot of insight from this conversation, and it will help to assist you in your decision-making about your business and your career over the next five or so years. Also, please don't forget to check out the show notes for Judith's new project with Taka Insights, which gives you insight into a whole new level of coffee-related data. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with the fabulous Judy Gaines. Judy Gaines, welcome back to the Map It Forward podcast. It is so good to have you here, lady. Oh, what a pleasure to be with you again. What an interesting year that we have had in the coffee industry. Like no other. (laughs) So the last time you came on the podcast, uh, we had just been through one of the most interesting Julys in Brazilian coffee history, coffee producing history. So why don't we recap what happened in July and okay. uh, then we can talk about what preceded the rest of the year and why you're here to talk to us. <laughs> sure. So let's see. In July, there was not one, not two, but three frosts. Mm-hmm. And I was in Brazil for the first one on July 1st. And mm-hmm. then I left July 11th and then all of a sudden, Nine days later, cold weather hit again. And then towards the end of the month, um, we had a third strike. And what was interesting about it is by the third frost, the market sort of made this decision that there was going to be no impact before the sun ever even rose in Brazil. And the Chile's temperatures are in the morning as the sun is coming up. But the market was already saying there's no damage because how do you kill the same tree three times? Which I've got to tell you at the time was very confusing because I was watching what you were saying on LinkedIn and, and the kind of information that you were giving us. And the information that you were giving us was not being correlated on the market. And that was quite confusing. Oh yeah. Uh, for everybody. Yeah. Um, so the market had raised up and, you know, beforehand, and then absolutely collapsed. Mm. And the thought was that the frost really didn't cause damage. But the truth is, 
some of that is showing up now because as the, the cold temperatures are, you have two types of frost. Let me back up for a second. One is visible and the other is this passage of cold air that can cause harm to the branches and to the trunk of the trees and to the, um, basically the, the vascular system of okay. the tree. And so it can impede the uh, xylem, the, the flow of the nutrients and the water moving up and down through the trunk and the branches. Mm -hmm. And it could be damaged, so cellular damage to the tree itself or the sap drying out in the branch. And so not all, not all cold hits in the same area and in the same manner. And that was the element the market for, forgot. We should mention that this is coming off the back of a drought as well in Brazil. Well, coming off the back of a drought and then continued drought yeah. and high temperatures and delayed rainfall. So it's every step in the process where something didn't go right. And how did, I mean, there was so much buzz around when this started to happen. How did the market react as the first frost, the second frost, the third frost hit? And then after okay, that? So the first frost, well, obviously, wow, there, there's, you know, a frost and people really didn't expect it to be as bad as it was. I happened to be, you know, as I said, in Brazil mm -hmm. at that time. And even though it was colder than expected, it really wasn't widespread at all. You had okay. to run around to look for the spots that were damaged. Mm -hmm. It was really the second frost that caused far more harm than the first frost. And more widespread from what I understand. And, and it was absolutely more widespread. Mm -hmm. So I went back to Brazil two months ago. I was there in October. So after the trees started to flower, after the heavy rains began. And what I saw was farmers who had to continue to take act corrective measures. So the damage was more than they anticipated. They thought there would be a recovery in the trees and that the rains would you know, be the miracle rains that make everything all better. And a lot of times that can happen, mm -hmm. but the trees were still in shock and you still had noticeable damage in that the trees weren't beginning to bounce back as they should. And so farmers, when I was there, were skeletonizing trees further than they had or taking action to skeletonize some trees where they're cutting the branches and the height of the tree back as opposed to just pruning some of the branches they thought were impacted. And then other farmers where they had skeletonized realized that they have to stump the tree. Can you and explain that to people, uh, what sure. that process does and why they do it? Okay. So when uh, many producers in Brazil, in fact, almost every single producer has a system where 
you have one good crop mm-hmm. and then they prune the trees because they, they know that the energy from the tree has been exhausted and you're not going to have as large a crop the second year. And to help to boost yields and also it cuts cost if you don't have to harvest twice. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you prune the tree you cut back the branches. And so you go from having 100% production one year to 0% production the next. And during that next period, the branches grow and the trees have a year to rest. Mm -hmm. And then they produce the following year an excellent crop. Mm. And so the decision was taken and large farms, by the way, will do maybe 40% of their crop is on one cycle, about 40% is on the other cycle. And this way they can balance their income and maybe 10 or 20% is new plantings. Okay. Okay. On a small farm, they can't really do that. And so some of them go from 100% production to zero production Mm -hmm. and have no income the second year. So they need to make sufficient income the first year to carry all costs for two years. Right. Right. So there were some farmers that were fortunate in that what they lost, they wouldn't have been producing anyway. Okay. So they had an on-year crop and then were zeroed out this year anyway and hope they'll come back for the... 23, 24 crop. Is that a wait I mean, and see kind of thing? 23, for 23, 24, rather. Is that a wait and see kind of thing in well, that scenario? For, for can they some, what's happen? yeah, for, for some. But what happened was some of the damage was so, expen- was so extensive mm-hmm. that when the rains returned the beginning of October, they you wait to see how the, the tree responds. Mm -hmm. And if there isn't sufficient foliage, then they have to consider that there's internal damage to the tree. And therefore they cut the tree back. So they stump it. In other Mm -hmm. words, they bring it to about 30 centimeters above the ground. And therefore it's not going to produce for two years rather than one year. So it's a double loss in income because the farmers who have to stump then lost two years. If the tree is so extensively damaged that the um, vascular system is destroyed, then they have to plow the tree up and replant. And that would normally be a three-year loss. If we look at the actuality of what you saw when you were in Brazil, what would you say was the extent of the damage? Was it a majority of them just having to trim back or to stump or to plow? It depended really on the area. Um, There there were some areas where there was complete devastation and it's just everything was cut back. 
but a lot of it had to do with the altitude. Okay. So below 900 meters was lost. Right. And above that, then some light or moderate damage. And you could see that the lower you go in the altitude, um, the more damage that there was. Excuse my ignorance when I ask this question, please. That's okay. Is the majority of Brazil's crop higher in altitude or lower in altitude? Majority is going to be higher because farmers know that there's always this risk of frost. Right. And they're taking a chance. Now, one of the things is that at the bottom, usually, the lower altitudes, sometimes that's where you're going to find the reservoir for water. And that is that gives off some moisture and therefore is supposed to make it more frost resistant. Right. And so farmers that did brave it to plant in some areas that would be prone to frost, which they had the water nearby, they didn't really expect to lose as much or to have the frost so extensive that they lost the trees, maybe risk one year's crop. Mm -hmm. And if you have a frost every 10 or 15 or 20 years, then for them, it's a gamble that you're willing to take. How did it eventuate for those guys? Did Did their hedge pay off? Well, in the case of having to actually rip out your trees and plow them over, then that becomes a little bit more of a, you know, a greater loss. Okay. And where I really feel bad was for the people who planted three years ago and made that investment, were expecting their first crop, right? and they lost it. That's devastating. That, that is devastating. That is really, really difficult. Or there's those farmers who, for the 22-23 crop, was going to be their big crop and they didn't have the income from the 21-22 crop. That was their zero crop. And now they lost what was supposed to be their big crop. And that hurts because there's so much additional cost involved because you have to have the equipment to take care of the trees and skeletonize them or stump them or invest in new trees. And and that really hurts. My understanding was that by the time the second frost came, that the tree, a lot of the trees had already cherried and that they wouldn't lose the crop from this year. Emma, did I read that wrong? Okay. No, no, no. You're, You're correct in that every, let's talk about the, there are six phases Mm-hmm. for the crop. And this is important in understanding why the 22-23 crop, which is the one that's going to be harvested nine months from now or eight yep. months from now, is in such dire shape. Okay. Okay. So what most people look at is, oh, wow, we've had this great flowering and now we can see the tri- the, the, the flowers on the trees. And when the flowers wither and fall off behind, you see the little pinhead-sized hose mm-hmm. 
that are the start of the cell division for um, that will become the fruit. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's really the the ovary of the plant of yep. the of the flower. Okay, and that begins to grow. And by December, it goes from being this little pinhead speck to being about the size of an eraser. Okay. Okay. So during the rainy season, that's what happened. At the same exact time, the branches of the trees are also growing and forming new nodes. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, as you begin the flowering process and the buds emerge and then flower and you start to see the fruit, you also have the vegetative growth stage of the trees. And that crop, so let's say the flowering that we saw just you know, in October, November, mm-hmm. we'll make the 22-23 crop. The, the branches growing now and the new nodes are for the 23-24 crop. And you, you always have two crops growing at the same time. You were explaining this last time you were on the podcast. You were talking about how the position on a branch can only be occupied by a flower only once that's correct branch and so in the coming harvest the flowering is sorry the flowering is for the coming harvest the extension of the branch is getting ready for the harvest after that exactly right but there's there's something else so you can see the extension of the branch Mm -hmm. and remember i said that when i was in brazil a year ago in december 2020 Mm -hmm. i said that the branches did not grow as much as they should have and that there was a deficiency in the number of new nodes on each branch. Mm -hmm. So at that point, it was a signal that there was the start of a problem for the 22-23 crop. Right. That it wasn't only drought impacting 21-22, which is the crop that was harvested a few months ago, but that there was also something that wasn't quite right with 22, 23. And if rains continued and you had decent weather and you didn't have the frost, then could the trees have made up for some of that deficit in the number of new nodes? Sure, if you had great conditions, but we didn't. Right, so we had shorter um shorter nodes we had less nodes from what i understand they're supposed to be 14 but it was about four is that correct no 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 four short we were four short okay right okay i knew the four yeah no they're like almost no crop okay so it it was you know called some i saw it was on average 20 25 percent difference of what it should be which means that there's a decrease in the number of cherries that a tree is going to produce, correct? Well, uh, let me say that differently. There's a decrease in the number of of real estate on the tree that flowers can occupy and therefore one would assume that if those flowers didn't end up on the floor, which is another part of the story, uh, if they had gone to cherry, there still would have been a decrease in the number of cherries. In the number of cherries, but you could make that up if – around the nodes that existed, mm-hmm. each one, the rosetta was full. 
and you had 20, 23 cherries around each node, well, you can make that up, but you need to have full leaves. You can't have a tree that's lacking energy and missing right. leaves that's partly defoliated. For photosynthesis. Right. And you don't have the, the carbon and therefore you're not going to be able to produce as much. And that was part of the problem later on. And as anyone who was paying attention to any of the media around coffee at the time, the big thing that producers kept showing us was that through the frosts, the leaves were being burnt. There was so many videos where producers were just grabbing bunches of leaves and just turning them into dust in in front exactly. of exactly right. But there, there's more to that whole story. Yep, go on. And and I think that it, it's good to enlighten everybody about yeah, the do. real truth of what happened here. So when the branches were growing last October, and it was visible that the branch didn't grow. Mm-hmm. There's something else that there isn't that much research on is that at the same time the branch is growing inside the nodes, you're starting to have the beginning of the cell division to create the gems that will become the buds. Okay. The buds and for so- the new branches? The, the buds that will ultimately be where the flowers are for the okay. new crop. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, it truly is the first stage of the development for the crop itself. It's not just that the branch and the node is forming, but mm-hmm. inside the, the branch, inside the node is also a key step. Mm-hmm. towards the, the, the development of the crop of the crop that's going to be harvested months later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or over a year later. Okay. So you have at the time the tree is flowering, you have this vegetative growth, the branches are growing, you wind up with more nodes. And then inside that node is the cell division that starts the formation of the bud. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we had in July, we had the trees were burnt on the outside from the frost. Yeah. And then inside the nodes also suffered. Okay. For the 20, for what would be the um, 2324 crop potentially. But you had the situation. I want to back it up to last October. Okay. Okay. Last October, what you had was a situation where you had the flowers that were beautiful, and then it stopped raining and there was extreme heat. So during the vegetative stage of growth during 2020, you had the branch was less, was growing less, but inside those cells that I just spoke about were probably damaged. They were probably right. heat doesn't go very well with coffee as it's growing. Mm-hmm. And so I believe, and speaking to a number of uh, plantologists and agronomists, that that is where probably 
a good part of the damage occurred for the 22-23 crop. Right. But it's not evident until a year later after it flowered. Right. Did the did the flowers end up making their way to cherry or did the heat end up causing some of those flowers, to, a lot of those flowers to just fall off? Okay, so let, let's walk through the progression yep. on, on what has happened here. So you have, so it's not confusing. So 21, 22 last year, the flowers did not set mm-hmm. and that impacted the 21, 22 crop. Right. Okay. And everybody saw that, but what they weren't thinking about was how that heat and drought was potentially impacting the 22, 23 crop that just finished flowering. And which they will harvest in nine months from now. Correct. And then, so that was the first thing. And again, you can't see it. It's not really visible. And you have to understand the cell division for what's going on inside the branch. It's really not watched very carefully. Then you have a period where what is survives on the trees, mm-hmm. you have the growth period for the fruit. Mm-hmm. At the same time that is happening, those cells inside the branch are beginning to develop and become the gems that are eventually will bud and and flower. And get harvested, yeah. Okay. There's a period where the tree takes, it's called the induction phase. Mm -hmm. And that's where the tree takes these undifferentiated buds. So in the beginning with the cell division, they don't have sexual characteristic. Okay. They could either become leaves or they can reproduce and become fruit. Okay. And that happens really from um, April to June where you have this induction phase. Mm -hmm. And the tree bases that on, is it stressed or not? Does it believe it has enough energy reserves to develop the fruit. If it doesn't, it's going to grow more leaves. So it reacts to its environment in that way. 100%. The tree is brilliant in in how how it handles that. It's very adaptable. And so when you had the dry weather prior to that, the tree recognized that it didn't have the energy, the capacity to reproduce and have fruit and took a decision that was going to have more foliage. So during this induction phase, you had the tree, it was clear that it was going to be growing more leaves. Mm. And then the damage, so that already was decided before the frosts in July. Mm -hmm. So no matter what happened with the frost, the tree already took Mm. the decision to have more leaves than fruit. Then you added, so it's already reduced. Then you added the additional stress. So whatever 
fruit the tree had decided it was going to produce. Now, maybe because of the vascular damage, was reduced even further. Because and, of the first and, and hurt more. And this is where farmers thought, based on the normal recovery, right? But we're, we'll do okay. You know, it doesn't look like there's much damage. The tree should have responded, but they didn't because of all the steps prior to that, where the trees already took a, de a decision. We're not going to produce for 22-23. It really is the perfect storm, isn't it? Absolutely. And it got worse. Mm. So you had one frost, two frosts, three frosts, and frosts dehydrate. I mean, like we all know how we suffer with like chap lifts. I mean, I grew up in New York in cold winters and <laughs> you know, moisturized. And, you know, it's, it's no different for a tree. Mm. And so you had the, the problems from that. And then the tree was starved. Uh, it was dehydrating and was losing leaves. And it needed the rainy season to start on time and not have additional warmth for greater evaporation. In September, the temperatures got warm again, and therefore that caused further loss. How did the market correlate as all those events were going on? Because it's, it's very interesting when I speak to friends of mine who are commodity traders and it was very interesting to see that the market got more speculative as things moved through this year. What I mean by that was there were external factors like all this stuff in the news about is inflation transitory, are people just making up that, you know, the supply and demand economics of coffee is just being uh messed with just so that coffee can also follow inflation. Mm -hmm. It was all of that that was going on. I didn't see the market really take note of what was really happening on the ground in Brazil. Did I miss that? Like, did I get that wrong or or was, no. was it out of sync? Okay, so let, let's sort of think about this for a second. Yeah. It was the middle of pandemic and Brazil wasn't really having great track record with COVID. Correct. Okay. And so <laughs> putting it nicely. Okay. And so, you know, let's say I'm a consultant. I don't have to answer to a higher authority. Yeah. Okay. Daughter's grown. So yep. I kind of trotted down to Brazil a bunch of times and twice completely unvaccinated. Okay, lots of Clorox. <laughs> lots <laughs> lots of, of Clorox. Okay. Um, and figured, well, I'm going to be outside. So there was no one. I mean, I was told, you know, repeatedly, first and second trip, that I was the only foreigner that ventured to Brazil. Right. So no one really saw what was going on the ground. It was just, you know. It was, so it was guessing. There was a lot of guesswork. Or believing in what was happening from agronomists, but even some of the agronomists weren't traveling from one region to the next or the same way because right. of what was happening. 
Right. And so there, there was that element where you didn't have as many eyes on the ground as, you know, boots on the ground as you normally would. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, by the time the frost came, it was still dicey. A lot of people, you know, haven't even traveled yet. Mm. Mm. So I think that was part of the issue. And then the other thing is that people were sort of assuming based on past behaviors of, well, you know, we talk about a frost and everyone gets hyped about it and the market races up 12 cents and collapses because it was really a small, isolated area, good weather followed, and therefore you don't even remember that the frost hit. And there's been so many times where there's been, oh, there's drought and then it rained and everything was fine. And so I think people, you know, in some ways I could say rightly assumed that, you know, in terms of risk, was it really happening or not? And so I can understand where they kind of downplayed it because normally that's the thing to do is say, well, it wasn't going to be so bad and the weather will improve. And the market normally reads it that way. Except so, it didn't. Like it was it three record-breaking frosts. <laughs> so, and and because you never really had a situation where you had a prolonged drought prior to the frost okay. and the timing, it's you can have dry spells. So everyone talked about the dry spell in April through June, and oh, we didn't have rain for seven months. Okay. But really, that April-June period was positive for the development of the 21-22 crop. Mm -hmm. So there's times where stress on the tree is good. And if you have dry weather going into the harvest, you wind up having a more uniform crop and a better quality in the cup. So it was good for... 21, 22. It wasn't going to increase the size of the cherry because they were already grown. It wasn't going to change the volume of coffee, but it did improve the flavor. And because you had a dry harvest, so you were able to harvest quickly. You didn't have a lot of coffee being picked up from the ground. It made it very uniform. Do you mean that it, did you mean to say it improved to the flavor or it impacted the flavor? No, improved. Okay. How so? Okay. So it, because the dryness, okay, so. It intensified? It it intensifies. So you have the higher concentrates of the sugars. Okay. Okay. Or higher. And you don't have the rain marring the quality. Okay. And so even though the 21-22 harvest was small, the drought benefited that crop in the end in terms of just the quality, not the quantity. Mm. But it hurt 22-23. Right. And it sounds like for some producers it hurt 23-24. Sure, because the branches, okay, are, you know, the trees 
being sapped of nutrients mm-hmm. and you couldn't um, fertilize on time. So th- there's some phosphorus applications. Some farmers didn't put it on in a timely manner. Um, there's some other factors and the tree basically was continuing to be stressed and stressed and therefore was defoliating. So it sounds like we had the perfect storm, one that people probably couldn't predict. Brazil being the largest producer of coffee in the world, how is this going to impact the amount of coffee that's available in 2022? Okay, for 2022, we're still working off the supplies that were just harvested. Yep. So it was a low crop, but it was a decent crop. Mm-hmm. And so the, the tightness really isn't as much in 21, 22 as it will be in 22, 23. And remember the 21, 22 crop was going to be the off year for production anyway. Right. And so you had some of the drought was impacting trees that were going to be skeletonized no matter what. Mm-hmm. You were going to have a lower yield. And so the actual loss from the drought for 21-22 was, you know, well, 5 million more, 6 million bags taken off from what it would have been, but it's not that dramatic. 22-23 should have been the full rebound and recovery and back up to say 50 million bag crop. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to be 35 million in terms of Arapaga production. Right. It's going to rival or even potentially be smaller than 21, 22. That's how bad it is. Is this worse than what you even thought it would be? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I went back. So I was there in July and then I went back to Brazil in October. And I was like, where's the coffee? So you had this beautiful, prolific flowering. And the flowering was absolutely exceptional because the trees were stressed. And when trees are stressed, they have great flowering. But because of that loss inside the branch from a year ago, behind the flowers, you didn't have the bud. You didn't have the fruit that had formed. Basically, let's put it in in terms we can understand. You had flowers without ovaries. You posted some amazing videos and photos on your YouTube channel um, and on LinkedIn about how when the rains came in, it kind of washed the flowers away. Well, when it was two things. So it's not that it really washed the flowers away, okay? So you didn't see that many white flowers on the ground. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when, when the tree flowers, there's really a period, a day or two after the tree flowers where you don't want rain because you want the flower to set properly. Mm-hmm. And that is the most critical point. And despite double the amount of rainfall in some areas, in October. Farmers didn't have rain immediately after the flowers opened. Okay. 
And so there was this window and you counted on a calendar. Okay. This window where there was no rain and therefore the flowers should have been okay. And after a few days, the flowers dry up and wither away. And then what's left underneath the dry flower would be the fruit. Mm-hmm. And the pinhead size, the, it's called the chumbinho. It's a pellet or the, the start of the grain. And in some cases, there was no fruit. There's nothing. Right. The node was the node was empty. In other cases, you could see that it was blackened, and therefore was already dead, or that it was too yellow in color, meaning that it had a hormonal imbalance and wasn't going to survive. And even if you had all the buds that were present around the node Mm -hmm. and you didn't have the rain and everything looked like it was okay, you didn't have enough leaves. So there's a formula for how much energy you get from the leaves. And basically you need two full large leaves to support one on either side of the node to support the crop for that node. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, mathematically it works out to about five centimeters of leaf to give the energy for one to two cherries. And it had gone because of the frost. And so because of the frost and because of the drought mm-hmm. and because of Bishu Monero. So Bishu Monero is basically the larvae from a white fly. And when you have dry weather, then these white, you know, it's like fruit flies, you put like mm-hmm. the gnats. Um, they live in the leaves and they fly about and they drop their larvae. You have less damage from um, Bichu Monero, the, these larvae, it's like a little, almost like a little worm that's left in, mm-hmm. in each leaf. When you have rainy weather, then the flies don't like to go out in the rain. <laughs> and oh, therefore, they're not spreading their larvae as much. And so that's why when it's dry, you have these higher infestations of these pests because they don't fly when it rains. Now, there was something else that you spoke about on your YouTube channel, and that is FOMA. Okay. And the rain did not help that fungus. Uh, sorry, it, the rain helped that fungus proliferate, which was not good for coffee trees. Correct. So when I was there two months ago, mm-hmm. um, the trees had already flowered and there was apparent that behind the, the flowers, there wasn't that much fruit. Mm-hmm. And because of the excessive volume of rain, that fell during the day, you had too much cloud cover and cooler temperatures. Okay. And that creates a situation where you have a breeding ground for fungus. Right. And that's what was happening. And it looked like acid was just burning the branches and that the crop was just vaporizing. In our hands. So the rain, 
The rain was great to keep the beetles away, sorry, the, the bugs away from laying their larva, but then there was this other problem of the foma that was proliferating right. because of the rain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the overcast story. If this was a fairy tale, <laughs> this would be horrible. I mean, it just um, seems like Brazil has just copped it again and again and again over the last, since October last year. Now, the, the FOMA, so remember I said the frost is like below 900 meters and the FOMA is yeah. above it. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't write this movie, Judith. In areas where <laughs> the crops should have been okay and, and survived and, and the higher altitudes weren't then as impacted by the drought, but then you had some of the FOMA issues. And it, it, it kind of subsided a little bit. And there are treatments, but that adds up. I mean, copper treatments are expensive. Well, and all the inputs have gone up because of inflation this year. Right. We've had producers talk to us about that this year and how well the, you know, the, co- the price has gone up on the sea market, so to have the costs required Mm-hmm. to produce coffee so while it, on the outside wages. it may appear right. wages have gone up the cost of of doing business has gone up across the entire supply chain right so this is i mean it, people are thinking well you know the producers are doing great the price of coffee has gone north of 250 as of yesterday and well, so well, there's always producers who are doing great yeah. and they're going to obviously um be singing okay even with the cost increases but let, let's look at the reality and that the brazilian real had continued to weaken against the US and last and last year when the currency equivalent so the new york contract quoted in real was you know 550 600 mm-hmm. and that was a record price mm-hmm. and therefore they were very willing to sell their crop last a year ago, July, at that price, believing that the New York contract was going to hit south and how much weaker could the currency get. And therefore, last year's price was great. But then when you started to have price increases on all your inputs and wages track inflation in Brazil. So that's 10% increase right there. Wow. And you lose and you lose a third of your crop. Well, suddenly locking in the price for the harvest for 21, 22 and 22, 23 at that level is no longer as attractive as it seemed. And so it's not that farmers are getting the price of 1400 to 1500 real for all of their coffee. In the Global Coffee Town Hall, you raised a really interesting, I mean, I've got to thank you for really setting the stage for what ended up being an incredible conversation. It really was a fantastic discussion. But it, it was it, fun to be part of it. I can't thank you enough for your first question because you really started it really well. And thank you again for for being a part of it. But we were talking about you asked the question to the to the room about defaulting on contracts and the 
how that's going to play out over the next year or two years. Is that kind of similar to what you were just mentioning about how last year the Real was at one position, now we're 12 months later, producers are probably reassessing what they should be locking in and what they shouldn't be locking in for the next couple of years based on the way that the market's moving? Well, sure. And so at that time, I believe we were talking about that they were going to be willing to sell at 1200 to 1300 right. And then all of a sudden, as it became apparent there was more and more losses to the 22-23 crop, yeah. that number started increasing. And also because energy costs were going through the roof. Mm. And therefore, suddenly they were like, well, we're not going to sell till 1500 And then even we're not going to sell till 2000 And so as much as if farmer wants to maintain the same income, because remember, they try and balance their crop and have a portion. So large producers divide their farms and they know there's going to be 40% higher, 40% less, and you know, call it 10 or 20% mm-hmm. at you know, replanting. And they have a pretty good idea in managing their yields and, and what those expectations are. So if suddenly some of that is gone, you need to have a higher price for the coffee that's remaining on your tree. And that coffee that's remaining on your tree not only has to cover the absence of income from the coffee that isn't there, but also has to cover some of the expenses. If you have a crop, a tree that has less fruit on it, you still have to fertilize it the same. Right. You still have to treat it the same. Your costs are high for not much income. For people who have never heard the term, for people who have never heard the term default, uh, contract defaulting before, because just you're somebody who's incredibly experienced. You just hit 20 years. Congratulations. Uh, since you, 20 years in my firm, but 38 in, in coffee. Oh, and coffee you know you can so, give me those 18 years back <laughs> 18 and a half truth be told so 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 in your world knowing what defaulting contracts is like kind of the you know that's what the rookies have to you know that's it's everyday speak for you but for baristas and roasters and and you know m- many other cafe owners and and business owners who listen to this podcast even though they buy green coffee and roast it, they wouldn't, many of them would never have seen a contract before. And so could you explain to them what it means to default on a contract and why that could wreak some havoc in our industry? Sure. So when you default on a contract, you're basically not delivering as promised. You're reneging on a commitment, which frankly, isn't very nice. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's an honor system involved and people have to consider that if you're defaulting on a contract and you're not delivering, that there's ramifications to the person on the other side who expected to have that product and made commitments on their own. And they're also going to be suffering financially. It's not that you could just walk away from your obligations. 
So to give people an example uh, correlated back to what we were just talking about, we uh, the real was so people may have been securing contracts for five fifty last year. The price of coffee has gone up, and this year the contracts they may have been able to get double for the contracts that they had locked in last year, or triple, or triple. And so the incentive is well, I may get some kind of penalties if I default on this contract that I agreed to last year, but I will still make more if I absorb those penalties or get no penalties at all because it was a handshake contract. And so I'm going to go for the triple this year because it just makes better business sense well, to do that. handshake contracts. Well, okay. I'm not. Yeah, I'm, they're they're not they're, they are not hand handshake contracts. So I want to I be mean, clear what I mean by that. Right. Uh, so I've spoken to producers, not in Brazil, in other mm-hmm. countries, who have made agreements that are. That, I mean, they don't have lawyers that they can do these kind of real written contracts with, so that they've agreed mm-hmm. with different importers that they will supply them based on a handshake. Right. So, but handshake is, is, you know, legally contract. It, your word is your word. Right. So, so, so you, there are some situations where these aren't legally binding. So there is no financial ramification for defaulting per se. There are many instances when it is a legal contract, but this is the coffee industry. So there's nothing that's standardized. And nothing okay, that flows so the same way it, through all of it. It's really not because the coffee industry depends on how laws are enforced Locally. in various countries right. and whether someone perceives that there is a risk to them right. for doing something that really is illegal. Right. Okay. So I am sure in every country, yeah, there is a legal system that says you just don't do that, okay? But is the legal system strong enough to penalize someone? And there is where the difference is. Or let's face it, there's, if you pay someone off or you know someone, you know, Mm -hmm. know, can you get away with it? And, And that is a problem in some countries and that's not unique to coffee. But I wanna go back on something. Yeah. And that is, there's two different situations here. Mm-hmm. There is the coffee producer who seriously lost their production yeah. and therefore they can't meet their commitments. There's no coffee. Okay. They, so they, they don't do have as much coffee. It's not that they're being greedy. Okay. They, they simply don't have the production they expected. And therefore, they're going back to the cooperative, the buyer, and saying, hey, I can't deliver on this commitment. So how can we renegotiate that so that future crops will be given to you and I will eventually make it up? Mm -hmm. And so in that case, the cooperatives had to understand if the coffee doesn't truly exist. That's very different than someone who's defaulting because they're crying sour grapes and understandably so. I mean, you know, given all the cost increases and all the problems, 
and they know they're going to be underwater, okay, and that they're delivering it at a loss because their costs now are greater than the price that they mm. agree to. And therefore, you know, they're not, it's not that they're being greedy, it's they understand they have losses and they're not going to be able to manage as a farm and, and it could put them out of business and they're going to be piled on with debt. And therefore, how can they deliver it when they know it's going to push them out of their family farm and maybe they'll lose their farm? And therefore, they try and negotiate or you know, they make a deal with another party who's willing to give them a higher price. And then there's others that are just based on greed. Mm. So we have to be very clear in terms of the defaults. That's not just this one-off situation and defaulting is illegal and therefore everyone is, you know, in the same boat. It's really not that way. There's a lot of gray here. What's and as a producer, go on. Okay, so let's look at it through the supply chain. Mm -hmm. The producer is the first link. So mm -hmm. how can they pass on these higher costs? Mm -hmm. Right? So the buyers either are going to accept it or not. There's nothing they can do except to pile on all these additional costs and try and get a better price for their coffee. You don't have that anywhere else. There's in the middle of the supply chain, well, if you don't like the price from one coffee producer or one origin, well, buy something cheaper. Yeah. You have a yeah. choice. And if your costs have gone up, well, you could try and pass it along and, and set some, you know, announce some price increases. And maybe you'll lose some customers and maybe you don't and, you, you know, accept that. But for the producer, you don't have someone to turn back to. So the producers have locked in their prices before they deliver. And so their only option when they realize that the inputs are higher are either to renegotiate those prices, copper loss, or default. Right. What's the flow-on effect of defaulting to okay, the rest so of the supply chain? Well, I mean, that's a huge problem yeah. because if someone had expected that coffee and now they're not going to receive it, then one, if that coffee was hedged, there is a short futures position that has to be lifted. And to cover that short futures position, it becomes, you close out that position by buying futures. And that, in essence, pushes prices up, especially in a panic situation. Which the second, would you say that we're in that situation in 2021? Yeah, you know, when the market has these very high volatile days, then yeah, there, there's some panic buying and, you know, understanding there. Um, but the, the buyer who's not getting the coffee they expected at the price they want, now they have to get that physical coffee. And where are they going to get it from when there's so many bottlenecks and uncertainty 
in the cash market, in the fiscal market, yep. because of container shortages. And shipping expenses and port exactly. backlogs. And Everything. I mean, we really are in, I mean, Brazil's, Brazil's experienced a perfect storm with regards to the production of coffee, but that's only the beginning of the problems right. because the entire logistical supply chain is experiencing bottlenecks, price hikes, inflation, labor shortages, COVID restrictions, port backlogs. It's really... It's just, made, it's just amplified everything. It's just made everything so much worse because you can't rely on, I'm going to get coffee from another supplier and expect it in a timely manner. Hmm. You know, I've been speaking to a lot of importers and a lot of producers and I've, I've asked them, like, will you come on the podcast and talk about what's going on with coffee? And a lot of them are too scared. And they're not scared because uh, they're worried about having the conversation. They're just so on edge about what they're going to do. The common theme all of them are saying is there's no coffee. There's no coffee. And people's expectation on the roasting and cafe side of this industry is just that, well, we'll just find it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's this is how it sorts out, and that's the job of the market, right? Is to reach that point where it does sort it out. That's why prices go up. But will it? Sure. So help me understand that, and why I say why I ask the, this question. <laughs> you can say is, sure, right? right? Because, and I'm the person who never lets anybody get away with making right. things like that without explaining it. Because here's my. Uh, position. I do a lot of consulting around the world uh, in many different coffee markets with cafe owners and roasters. And what we're finding is that, and, and I guess this is a bit of a prediction from me, the expectation was that the pandemic and the supply chain and logistical constraints of 2020 and 2021, there was an expectation that that would help businesses that shouldn't be operating it would help them gracefully exit the market Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is businesses who didn't quite know how to participate with integrity efficiently and with integrity and treat their labor well and participate well they kind of needed encouragement to close and the expectation Mm -hmm. was that that would happen more likely in 2021 than in 2020. But because of much of the government funding that happened, a lot of those businesses got some padding that has extended that out. And now what we're starting to see is that there are the supply chain constraints are continuing to get worse. And the logistical constraints, not just from raw materials, but we're talking about packaging and we're talking about labor Mm -hmm. extending no longer to return. And so, you know, the Fed having removed transitory from (laughs) its uh, inflation conversation now, people are starting to take this a little more seriously. And what we're... When people start taking it more seriously, that's usually kind of like the end so Do you think- I would take the contrarian side 
and say that bottlenecks only can last for so long and that maybe the new variant will slow things down a little bit. There'll be a little fewer flights. There's going to be you know, more crude oil production coming on stream in the first quarter. That will ease energy prices, which then in turn helps to lower the cost of fertilizers and inputs. And efficiency is going to come into some of the backlogs that are being seen. There's more containers that are gonna be available in the next quarter. And that will help to ease some of the constraints. And it's just going to take time to work it through. Right. But as people see it starting to ease, then the worry is over. Except from when I speak to shipping companies, uh, the earliest prediction of when these bottlenecks are going to end, all things being equal and no more perfect storms showing up, mm-hmm. uh, best case scenario end of 2022 is when shipping, if nothing else goes wrong, uh, end of 2022 is when they expect ports to return to pre-2020 efficiencies. Now that's a whole year. Maybe they're returning to all the way back, winding the clock back to that, maybe. But in between, there's huge amounts of improvements that could occur compared to where we are. So I would say we're probably, it's not going to get, how much worse is it going to get? The market's already faster. (laughs) You don't know who's listening. I'm so scared when anybody says, no, it's going to be fine or it could never happen. It's (laughs) fine per se, but I think the market is kind of, markets are forward looking and have discounted that it's going to get a little better. It's it's now in the upslope. Okay? You think the shipping gods can hear you, lady? <laughs> Good. Okay. I, I mean, just don't want them to hear you and say, let's see if we can challenge what Judith is saying and we can make that. <laughs> I just. Well, no, I, th- I, I think that because you're going to see the easing in the energy crunch. Which isn't going to fix the bottlenecks that are happening at ports around the world. But it all begins to smooth things through. And what you have is that there's more distribution where people are looking at local suppliers to turn to and to help to you know, buy more local. You're going to not look to import the the widgets from China anymore and you're going to find another supplier or you're going to lower the amount of SKUs and you're going to have maybe adjustments in your inventory levels. You're not going to produce every variety of everything and need as much stock. So you believe that the and, market and let, let's, let's 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 take it one step further. Mm-hmm. Everyone who is in lockdown who is going to buy a Peloton bike or a new laptop or <laughs> you know the exercise equipment and redo their kitchen, right? We was taking up these high-priced items. That's already kind of done. You would think, right? Right. <laughs> well, you? you would think I'm just constantly baffled by how much money people have to spend. And 
they keep spending. Consumer spending is up again this quarter. How many quarters can we go with inflation increasing and spending? Can, I mean, it, it runs parallel, I guess, if inflation well, is the up, spending, spending is, is up. I would say the spending is probably different. So if people are, you know, from New York standards, okay, if you're not spending 500, 600, 800 a month in commuting costs because you're right. working from home and you're not buying the same wardrobe or as you were before and you're not eating breakfast and lunch out as before mm -hmm. suddenly your same salary is being stretched and going that much further and if you're not taking as many trips as you did before right and not buying as many souvenirs as you did before okay then your money is being allocated differently and you could afford to buy stuff so going back to what we were talking about with um with the markets finding a way if we anticipate that in 2022 given the constraints on the consuming end because it it's my it's my prediction i guess that producers are experiencing these challenges at one time and then the people who are the flow on effect won't be realized on mm -hmm. the other end of the, the this value chain until later. And so the challenges are going to be experienced by roasters and cafes in 2022, 2023 and 2024. And so what I think we're going to see next year is the number of cafes close and roasteries close. We're already starting to see it. We're hearing from a lot of people that are saying, you know what, I'm deciding to, to close the business and not open it in 2022. Okay, so, so that's go ahead. not really different than CVS saying they're going to close 900 stores. Right. And, there, and there's a lot of places where you had um, Cafe X and on one street corner and Cafe Y on the other, and then Cafe X was two blocks away. And they're not having the same traffic. Right. And therefore, they're going to close. Right. And the margins aren't there if you don't have as much of the traffic. Right. So there's going to be a reshuffling. Uh, and I... I staunchly believe there's going to be a lot of of reshuffling in 2022 of the industry particularly on the consuming end of the market and I think there's going to be a move away from the traditional cafe model and the traditional roastery model to a different model I'm not going to I'm not <laughs> going to hazard a guess as to what that's going to be because I think that uh you know, the innovation that you talk about that stems from these kinds of challenges, I don't think it's starting oh, to happen. Oh, absolutely, 100%. So the defaulting contracts that we were talking about, how does that flow on to the consuming end of the market if? It pushes prices higher. Right. So the cost of acquiring coffee is going to be higher. Replacement cost for inventory increases. Now, can that be made up by donuts and bagels and selling 
whose prices are also going up. Right. Okay. And those prices are going up, but can it be passed on to the consumer in some way? Probably. Or do people change the cup size or, you know, something or no free refills? There's always something that's going to slow demand. And I think that also one of the bigger issues, and, you know, I talk about the different sides of the market is food service. Mm -hmm. Food service, as far as big venues and conferences, how fast are they coming back? Not just, you know, our own expos that we love, but in every industry, how full are they going to be? And therefore, how many cups are going to be wasted that, you know, we're not going to see that waste. And that hurts consumption. Mm-hmm. If hotels aren't filling up, then you're not consuming as much because it's all those cups that people forget about. It's all the coffee that was poured, but not consumed. What is your prediction about how that moves in 2022? See, my, my thought is the price is going to do its thing and get to a level that it's going to make some demand shifts. It always does. And it's no different in 1997 when the market got to 318 per pound and roasters innovated and learned to steam clean Robusta coffee that was in plentiful supply because at that point, Vietnam had gone from producing, you know, a million and a half bags for a hundred years to suddenly producing 15 million. Mm. And so there was huge amounts of oversupply of Robusta and Robusta prices were depressed. And roasters learn to innovate and adapt and use more robusta coffee. Well, starting to see that now, right? You're seeing that now. Plus, you know, Vietnam and other countries have worked on improving the quality and the technology has enabled better blending and masking on, on certain things. And technology has played a key role here. And so you can shift blends even more readily than you did in 1997 for some commercial roasters, not everybody. Okay. But it certainly can. And so the market's going to make certain adjustments and there's always, what's your next best coffee? If you can't afford one coffee or that coffee isn't there, then, you know, what's your next best. And in Brazil, they're using up a lot of the lower quality blends domestically because prices have gone up on the retail level or it's stretched. There's changes. There's always something. So the market adapts to the availability right. out there. So it, mm-hmm. it will just find either people will go without, the people who've decided that they won't go without, they will find different ways to adapt to the coffees that they can afford. And it's going to be subtle. So, you know, you go to a car dealership that used to have better quality coffee and maybe they're not having the free coffee anymore. Right. I mean, things tend to disappear on 
the shrinkage happens as well. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, I guess it's self-leveling, right? It's businesses will close, new ones will open, people will shift the way that they buy green coffee, which will in turn shift the way that consumers engage with different small businesses that are left there. Mm-hmm. Correct. And there's always those that want to engage with a smaller local business mm-hmm. and tend to buy more local and will support your, your local business versus a franchise. What role do you think, given – I wrote some numbers down for a podcast I was doing yesterday. So Arabica is up 108% year-on-year and Robusta is up 51% year-on-year. What do you think – will be the role that Robusta plays in the market in the next 12 months? Well, as that spread widens between the two, the arbitrage, yeah. clearly people are going to, roasters are going to look in that and say, forget Arabica, I'm going to be using more Robusta. They're We're priced possible. out of the market. Okay. Right now what you're seeing is some of the certified stocks, the coffee that's, graded for delivery against the New York contract with much of that being held in Antwerp is being pulled from stock. And that's a financial consideration. It's the cheapest coffee available because some of it is old Honduran coffee that's been sitting there for a while and has huge age-related penalties against it. And therefore it's cheaper than Robusta. And it's available, it's readily available. You know, when you, when you were on the podcast last time, you were talking to us about how you actually went to check the reserves of, of coffee in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And oh, my, my, my going into the warehouses and yeah, hearing it. And, and they were empty. And seeing what was there, yeah. <laughs> Did you get a chance to do that this time? Well, I passed some warehouses. But the thing is, what I saw on, in July, okay, was because I was there during the harvest there's no movement there's no trucks right. and i was saying where is the coffee yep and some were saying well it was delayed others were saying it was back on the farm there just wasn't the movement um one of the things that's unfortunate is that Konabi, the brazilian crop forecasting agency does a annual survey where mm-hmm. they give the estimate, their number for how much coffee is held in private warehouses in Brazil. And that figures as of the end of March, every year where they publish it. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't been published this year yet. Oh, wow. And, We're almost okay. at the next March. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so the market is kind of flying a little on, blind. you know, um, blind here because they don't have that. Right. And the reason why Konami said they didn't do it is because they spent so much of their time that they got the numbers, but then spent so much of their time focusing on the crop estimates and dealing with the frost. So are they just not going to publish or? Well, they, I believe, I remember you know, looking it up, that there's actually a law in Brazil that they are supposed to publish. Okay. Okay, but, you know, we have extenuating circumstances. So at some point, 
I think that number will come out and they'll go back and look at it. But the reality is if you plot the flow of Brazilian coffee relative to the currency exchange, we should be seeing if there was past crop available, mm-hmm. we should be seeing some much higher numbers out of Brazil. And I'm and and this is for months. And you can't blame all of that on a container shortage. Right. I mean, well, let's face it, money speaks. You've got huge prices and you're not having record exports. Doesn't make sense. One on one is not equal right. to so something something that doesn't add up. And it's not just because of container problems. I do think that because of some of the shipment problems, and, and that does exist, um, that there's a little bit more of a pileup in Brazil recently from the past few months of coffee that eventually will come out. And Vietnam had the same problem. And so as things start to ease and all of a sudden, all the commitments that were delayed and everything, there's going to be this flow of backed up coffee that suddenly hits. And that's going to put some pressure on the market. I'm hearing a lot of producers in Brazil tell me that they're just finding it very difficult to get their containers on ships. So Mm -hmm. they have containers ready to go and they just can't get it out. Right. Yeah, because higher priced items, you know, are getting priority. Right. And there's some that are. I mean, look, we had exports close to 3 million bags, but mm. it's not the volumes that would have been there otherwise. Right. Um, but that coffee still exists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So oh, yeah. at some point, some point as things start to ease and these bottlenecks start to flow, then even though you have all these production problems, as some of this coffee starts to come out, well, that helps to manage the supply. Yep. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> You're right. a little bit more optimistic than I am about that. <laughs> but no, well, let's hope you it know, goes your way. Because I've had like the decades, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I've seen it all before. Yeah. You know. You've we, seen these kinds of times before. I really felt that these kinds know, of times but, are unprecedented. Whenever there's supply issues and money's involved, okay, things tend to get resolved faster than people think. The only thing that isn't being resolved fast is the pandemic. It's the bloody pandemic. Right? (laughs) I mean, that's the only thing that just keeps going on and on and on, right? Right. Speaking of money. Mask up, everybody. (laughs) Speaking of money, one thing I want to ask you is, Could you give us some insight, given that you've got publications like Bloomberg uh, and other mainstream media really starting to talk about the fact that a cup of coffee is going to get more expensive in 2022? What role does that leave speculators playing on the market and how does that affect producers? Okay, so... If speculators are going long the market, they're buying futures anticipating higher prices, then doesn't that help producers because it's giving them a higher price? So 
let's break that down for people who don't quite okay. understand the the terminology. So speculators are people who work who participate uh, in the futures market that don't actually have any skin in the game. Right. Right. They don't, they don't care about coffee. They just care no. about making money. What their bet is going to be and right. whether they're profiting from a move. So they're gambling. They're buying low and they're selling high. That's the objective. So they'll buy or selling yeah. high and buying low. Selling right. That's buying the dip, right? Right. Well, right. no, that that's that's shorting the market. Shorting the market. Right. So so what we're saying is that speculators that continue to participate and bet against coffee uh, going down, they are going to drive the price up, which helps well, producers. I look at it a little differently, mm-hmm. okay? And that is speculators are not in it to help producers and there's not a, just speculators that are just buying it up. We're getting to levels where speculators are looking at it from a risk reward perspective and saying, hey, I've had this great ride to the upside. I've, I've made some tremendous profits here as the market's gone up. And do I want to you know, put that money in the bank and move on and go elsewhere? And how much more are they buying at these levels from risk reward perspective? And so I don't see speculators kind of piling on more and more positions here as the market's getting higher and the good faith deposit that you need to participate increases and options on futures become more expensive. Mm -hmm. And so, no, you're not going to see the speculative drive the same way as many positions. So the same dollar investment, fewer contracts at these higher levels. That's number one. The second thing is speculators are 100% necessary and vital for the trade because they're taking the opposite side of their position and providing the needed liquidity for them to function and being in and out of positions as necessary. Can you help me understand that a bit more? Sure. So if you are hedging the market, Mm -hmm. what you're doing is if you own cash, if you own physical coffee, Mm -hmm. then you're worried about the price going down. Mm -hmm. And therefore you would be short futures as the hedge. You have Mm -hmm. the opposite position in the futures market as you do in the physical market. So that way if the price, if you have an adverse price move, you have a loss in the cash market and a gain in the futures market as the offset right so basically you so go ahead no what were you going to ask so basically if you're going to hedge you need someone on the other side of that trade to balance you out right okay and And that's the role that speculators play right and so without the participation of speculators the market could create more volatility. Right. Okay. It's so the opposite of what most people think. Right. 
because we hear from producers a lot that we need, and this was discussed in a lot of the town halls of the four town halls that we had. I think it was discussed in all of them that there needs to be a new market that producers can participate because they feel that there's this entity, which is they're referring to the speculators, that are really determining the direction of the price. Well, yeah, this is yeah, this that, is that, that's um, where they need to have a course on understanding futures and options. Right. Okay, that that becomes an education and understanding the economics and understanding the role of the various participants. And speculators don't control the price at all. The the price is really in the cash market. Mm -hmm. The price isn't determined in the futures market. The futures market is a benchmark of what's happening globally Mm -hmm. in cash markets all over the world. And, but it's really the actual underlying fundamentals, including direct fundamentals like a crop problem or macro fundamentals. So oil prices and interest rates and currencies and competing crops. So right now in Brazil, you have some coffee that's being plowed under and it's going to soybeans because soybean prices are higher. Yeah, wow. And so how do you look at coffee versus sugar? And, and so all these factors. And so people tend to look at what's happening in their own backyard and not considering everything else. And so there's always this cry of speculators are destroying the market. And it's usually when prices are falling and producers aren't happy with the price. And they're saying it's not really reflective of the reality of the producers. But it's, re- it's reflective of the true reality of supply and demand. And the other, I'm going to say something that you know will be very controversial to some, and they'll look at me and saying, "No way!" And the market at points will have to trade below the cost of production for some of the most efficient producers. Because otherwise, you wind up with massive oversupply. It's the same way as any other industry, where if you have too much production, someone is going to be forced out of business. Someone, you know, producers have to innovate and find ways to become more efficient if there's oversupply, or some people are going to be, unfortunately, you know, producers will be knocked down. You hate to see that about producers and say, well, you can't produce anymore. But that's the reality of a free market. It's the harshness of the reality of that game, isn't it? Like we're in the opposite of that right now. Mm-hmm. The, the supply and demand economics is working in the favour of producers right now. Yeah. But then inevitably it swings the other way. Sure, because they're all getting the signal. Mm -hmm. Right. Which, I mean, everything's cyclical when it comes to markets. There's something else here. 
-hmm. And let's think about this, where in corn or wheat or other row crops, mm -hmm. they're annually planted. And therefore, the impact is if you have great prices one year, well, maybe farmers will produce more the next year. Mm -hmm. But the weather doesn't carry through from one yeah. crop year to the next. And when you have a tree crop, then the lag and response time for altering production is far, far greater mm. than what you have with other crops mm. that are planted annually. Or, you know, I mean, consider soybeans where you plant it and five months later you have your cash. So is it here, that you, go on, go on, please. Here, a farmer who plants coffee, they're not going to have a return on investment for three years. It's a long time. It, it, it is. And is it that the conversation that's being had around the complexities of the market correlated to production is a little bit ill-informed? Do you think that the, they're not understanding each other? Well, I think there, there's something else here, and that is obviously everyone wants producers to do well. And you see in some countries the, the, the poverty and you want the survival of the farms because it means so much to the communities. Mm. And, you know, it's a major foreign exchange earner for some countries. Mm -hmm. And so the implications of having coffee prices depressed are enormous. Yeah. And, it, and it's gut-wrenching when you see that and feel that. And I totally, totally understand that side of it. But from purely economics perspective, yep. it's not sustainable. There's times where you have to be more efficient. Otherwise, just like every other industry, there's those that will not survive. You talked about the cafes that are going to go out of business. Mm. There's enough foot traffic. How is no one really cries for those people that lost their investment? Maybe they put $500,000, $600,000 or more into designing and building a store around and making it beautiful and they have to close their doors. Yeah. Who's crying for them? Well, what's worse is you're going to see successful businesses go out of business. Right. And the way that that happens, and it's not all of them, but there will be a significant number of them that that go that route. And the reason is because we are in the midst of an in, enormous labor shortage that's not going to return. Mm -hmm. The pandemic has given people the moment to pause and reassess the social contracts in their life and the professional contracts in their life and they're choosing that the coffee industry isn't per se where they want to be working. And so we've right. seen a mass exodus out of our industry and, you know, people are like, but my cafe is full. I'm busier than I've ever been. The problem is I have to close two days a week now because mm -hmm. I can't get staff or I have to close four hours earlier. Now, for people who, and there's far too many people who don't understand how their profit and loss statement works. They don't understand what their balance sheet looks like. And because of that, what they don't understand is, sure, you aren't 
going to have to buy as much product. And so your cogs are not going to be as high, but your operating expenses are going to remain the same. You're still paying rent. You're still paying rent. You're still paying insurance. You're still, all the fixed operating costs are not going away. Right. And so we, we are an industry that operates on razor thin margins. You don't have very much of a runway where you're going to be able to take a hit for too long before it starts eating into your profit and loss statement and putting you in the red. And that's where you'll start to see successful businesses go out of business because their revenue is heavily reduced, having Mm -hmm. to close two out of seven days a week where they were previously opening seven days a week, operating on razor-thin margins, but that was fine because they were still making enough to stay soluble. They'll thin out and then those that survive will have the high, will pick up the higher traffic. Right. I meant solvent, not soluble. (laughs) I was thinking of coffee. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. (laughs) Solvent. You know what? The labor problem is the same on the farms. And that's that's been for years. But it's the same way where farmers are not able to harvest in a timely manner or take care of applying inputs and everything else because they don't have as much labor. And then maybe there's some people who are specialized and for running certain equipment and everything else, and they can't get them in a timely manner. Yep. And the costs have gone up. I mean, everyone is facing the same problem. Yep. It feels like there's a real reorganization of the way business is going to happen across in our industry, across the entire value chain. And I don't know that that's a bad thing, to be honest. I think that it's time for some real innovation in the way it's all going to happen. But time will tell how that goes. Well, you know, in difficult times, innovation is what helps the industry have longevity. Yep. And Um, survive. I agree with that. Speaking of innovation, talk to us about your new venture. Ooh. (laughs) So I have um, formed um, now the co-founder of Tocket Insights, Mm -hmm. which is um, based in Harlem, Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of been this dream situation. Um, where, you know, I'm the data hound. Yeah, you are. And I amassed tons of data and always looking for different ways to present it and overturn, you know, little stones and finding um, diamonds in the rough Mm -hmm. to, you know, market indicators. And there's just so much one can do. Mm -hmm. And so I've teamed up with a fantastic group, Taka Insights, who specializes in data. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing is we're taking market intelligence to the next level and starting out with rolling out a coffee platform that has um, our own indicators. So a lot of the um, tools to be able to take market action and direction. And we're, we're looking at everything. So one thing is weather, another 
um, we call the Origin Explorer. We have um, the 1,200 weather stations that we monitor in wow. Brazil. Wow. Okay, and we're still we're we're putting all this data together, and you know, you couldn't possibly do that otherwise unless I had the expertise from um, my team in Harlem. And so it, it's, the platform is going to be tremendous. And, you know, we're also looking, it's not just going to be limited to coffee. We're also going to be adding additional commodities. We started with coffee, um, but we're also looking at some meteor issues of what we can tackle, such mm -hmm. as carbon tracking through the coffee supply chain. And how is that related to weather and looking at a seasonal flow of carbon and how much carbon is used in Brazil during the harvest and during each point of the year and, and how does that work for the industry? Is this going to be tracked on an app? Is this going to be a website? It's Wait, all. It's oh, so, this is so, so exciting. This is really so, exciting. Congratulations. So users, of, so users of the platform will be able to look at it on a tablet, on you know their laptop or desktop, and then on their phones and in multiple languages. And what we're trying to do is look how many times people ask me to stop and explain something. Mm -hmm. And so there's this educational side. And so part of the, our goal is to give some of the top line information that's very, very complex data and how it's calculated and then breaking it down into something <coughs> that's very simple to understand. So the, the way it's graphically presented and the indicators are crystal clear for this is what it means. And putting it into kind of, we'll call it Judy speak. Okay. The of best making, kind of speak. Right? <laughs> of making something complicated, um, breaking it down into everyday language and, yeah. and understanding. So whether it's through the indicator itself or the visual on it, so it's very transparent. And then those that want to dig deeper, they, they can and sort of poke their way through the platform and find all this wealth of information and then, you know, even customize it and, um, for, you know, sort of like enterprise customers, even input their own data. And we, you know, have the indicators and, and the know-how to um, collect and assimilate it and um, pull it all together for them as well. So it, it's just fascinating. Oh, it's, it sounds very exciting. It sounds like something that even a dummy like me would be able to use and get value out of, as well as commodity traders and producers and, and everybody that's involved in coffee across the entire value chain. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just been one of these great journeys. And 
how it really started and how I met my partners mm-hmm. was that they contacted me through LinkedIn. Oh, that's awesome. That's you know, awesome. It, it sort of, would I be interested in what they're doing? And then, you know, my eyes went wide when I heard, you know, some of the amazing things and we've just hit off brain and been working towards this. And um, so here we are. That's awesome. From the reality. Is AI involved in crunching the numbers or is this traditional kind of data it's analysis? All, it's all looking at the, the seasonals and when you have so much information and then it's also comparing it against the traditional tried and true versus mm-hmm. what are the, the models showing and predicting. Yeah. Wow. So, when is this going to be available? Tomorrow. So today is tomorrow. The 9th so, of so December. You know, it's the eighth of December where <laughs> right, you are. It's the ninth of December. <laughs> so, so definitely right, by okay. the time this episode comes out. So this episode Which is, is why actually I can tell you it's tomorrow. Right. <laughs> exactly. So this episode <laughs> so. is gonna be coming out on my podcast as well as the Middle East version of mm-hmm. the podcast. So For everybody in the Middle East who is listening to this on um, Sada's podcast, uh, the reason that I wanted to make sure that we put this episode on the Middle East podcast is because there's a, a real challenge to get people involved in understanding the way the markets work in coffee in the Middle East. Uh, And there's information that's not quite as available in Arabic. So we're going to work to subtitle this in Arabic so that people mm-hmm. will be able to understand it. And hopefully what will be awesome is that they can then start moving towards your new platform and start to right. inform themselves about uh, all the different data points that they need to get across, which will be very exciting. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. So I'm still doing Gains Consulting and authoring my traditional reports. And this is just taking things to the next level. And and it's been really, really exciting. And we're going to be in Dubai at the SEA. The WCE, the World Coffee Mm -hmm. Expo. Right. In in January. In January. Yeah, awesome. So we'll be there um, showcasing the platform also. We'll have to make sure that we connect you with a few people that we know that are going to be there. Australia's not going to mm-hmm. let me leave because, if, you know, we're very lockdown right. happy here. So <laughs> anything that happens, they shut the borders. No one's allowed in, no one's allowed out. There's no way they're going to let us go to Dubai. Um, so I won't be able to be there, but I'll make sure that I connect you with the host for our Middle East podcast and she loves you um, and really gets – got to tell you, no, Judy. Then we won't get to see each other in real but I I gotta tell you that the amount of people that have contacted me and said can you please thank Judy for making all of this information so much easier to understand and Sada was one of them uh so I totally get why you're doing this project with Taka it's you are the person to help make all of this information so much more digestible for all of us well that's that's our goal yeah. And and not only the, the normal information, but we're we're just as I said, taking it up a few notches yeah, as great. far as some of the data polls 
Um, and it's impressive. Yeah, I can't wait. So we'll include links uh, for all of that in the show notes. If anybody's interested in finding out more, you can head to the show notes and you'll be able to get access to all of that information. Awesome. Okay. Judy, thanks for- Demos will be available. So- Can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for- Oh, with pleasure. All the work that you're doing to help keep us all informed and heading to Brazil so many times in a year. We're going back in February. What? <laughs> well, you know, if there aren't that many other places that are you need available, citizenship. I mean, I've got to put my, my fire mileage built here, right? So, I wish we yeah, could say come so, to Australia, but they're not going to let you in here either. <laughs> not yet. Well, I know. So, oh, well, um, Brazil it is. Yeah, so I'm going to aim to get to Brazil mid-February. Mm-hmm. And I want to, you know, look, 22, 23, we know is small, but yeah. I want to see what's going on for 23, 24 and have that look um, and to see if there's truly a problem for that crop. So things that I'll be looking at is the branch growth, branch development, cut into a few branches, maybe with some scientists and see what's inside. Um, for under a microscope and and look at the cell formations for 23, 24. I, you know, my thought is the trees are going to have more energy because there's more leaves, but we also need to see what the weather is going to bring. Hopefully 2022 is going to be better for everybody. Yeah. I'm not an optimist about any of that at the moment, but we'll see. We can hope. We can hope. Well, better depends on what side you're on also. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be careful on that word. We really do. Well, thank you so much for your time. I want to wish you a wonderful holiday season and an incredible 2022. And the best uh, of luck you. with the and new likewise. Couple. Thank you. We'll see each other in 2022, more so than just on Fingers these calls. crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> uh where can people find you on social media? LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Twitter, YouTube. And I'm actually, you know, in the middle of all this. So, you know, we're talking insights, but I'm also going to be having a new website as well that's going to Yay. be launching um, in early January. Okay. So, there'll be, it, you know, it also has this map of um, all the countries that I've travel to it's kind of cool um and a all the pictures that i've taken from some of the trips to origin um and having my little photo gallery on it so so that's jgainsconsulting.com right so that'll be launching soon great and so youtube definitely subscribe to judy's youtube YouTube. channel so there'll be more there'll be more Uploads. Great video, yeah. video uploads, great conversations that you've had with producers. Uh, it, I really enjoy the content that you post to your YouTube channel. So thanks for doing that. Oh, you're very welcome. All righty. We will, this is the last conversation that we're having on the podcast for 2021. 
So I always like to end on a really, really high note with the conversations. And you have been one of the highlights of my year uh, as guests oh, on the you. podcast. So thank you again. Well, let's just keep this going for yeah. 22 and beyond. Every time. Every time you do okay. your travels, you're coming back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Peace, love, and peanut well, butter. I'll move, the, I'll move the, uh, the printer from behind me so like, my backdrop is a little better. Get me. You know, let's face it. You had me tilt the camera down, right? I was and a little so bit can't, weird. Bean that's over my head. <laughs> that, that huge, I'm sorry. Huge, right. I wanted to <laughs> so, frame the camera so that we saw your beautiful face as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. but I like the coffee bean. There it goes. It is. Is it? Is it? an award is it a, a piece of no art? it's actual real husks i was in this the story behind that was two brazil trips ago okay um i i went to the ladies room and and on the hallway in the wall there, oh, there wow. was this beautiful coffee bean and i said i have to have it and so, so you took to it off the wall artist. and put it in your handbag well, no <laughs> when we went to the artist who um designs them and uh you know, yeah. found and they're just really nice because yeah, it's with, with coffee husk. Yeah, nice. Nice. So well, we, I apologize that people didn't get to see that throughout the whole conversation, <laughs> but they did get to see it now, which is great. And if you're listening, go check out the YouTube video to, to see this beautiful piece of artwork. All right. <laughs> we will see everybody in 2022 for who knows is our, who our first guest will be, but, um, we will see you all then. Uh, Judy, have an amazing we'll rest see of you your year. After I come back from Brazil again, yeah, also. Can't wait. Can't yeah. wait. Peace, love, <laughs> and peanut butter, everybody. Have an amazing rest of your 2021. Okay. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the podcast, friends. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and hit that subscribe button while you're here. Also, don't forget to rate and review. This episode is available on our YouTube channel if you'd like to watch the conversation via YouTube. Our sponsor for this episode is Mapper Forward Consulting. If you are looking to engage consultants for your coffee business in 2022, head to mapperforward.org forward slash consulting today. This podcast is produced by the team at Mapper Forward and the track you're currently listening to is called Run Run Run, available on Bandcamp. It's written and performed by myself, Lee Safar, and produced by the fabulous Evolutionary Theory. For more information on Map It Forward, head to our website, mapperforward.org, or follow us on social media at imapperforward or mapperforward Middle East. Till the next episode of the podcast, peace, love, and peanut butter, friends. Have an amazing rest of your day.